Rich and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Happy Saturday, everybody. This is Arizona Sports Saturday. It's your weekend stop for live and local sports talk. And Steve, I think it's obvious there's really only one local sports talk today for the next two hours. The Arizona Diamondbacks have completely dominated the local news cycle. Yeah. For good reason. First and foremost, love that we're still talking about the Diamondbacks deep into the month of October. Oh, it's perfect. So that that that's like the context of it all. Because um, you and I have basically made this our home for the last couple of weeks. Yep. We we live here now. I don't know if you guys knew I, uh, that. I, Trevor, I sleep right over there in the Trevor corner. Trevor had to wake me up uh, in the control room this morning. <laughs> That's, yeah, I was a little worried about you. <laughs> we left here like 10 hours ago, 11 hours ago. And we're back already. We'll be. This is only the first show we're doing today. We're going to do another show later. So after game two tonight in Arlington, we're going to be live here on Arizona Sports, giving you all the reaction to game two and previewing what is to come at Chase Field in game three on Monday. So uh, lots of baseball talk, which we love doing, and we get paid to do it, which is unbelievable to me. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be you, here for though. all the reaction. Yeah, so if you weren't already sick enough of us, um, we're going to be here for... A lot of opportunities to talk about the Diamondbacks. Um, really quickly, because I don't really want to bury anything else going on in Arizona sports, so I'm literally going to hit on everything else you need to know about within oh, the next... Oh, can we just like, get it all out of the way in like 15 like next, seconds? Yeah, <laughs> maybe not that fast, but I'm going to do my best. Okay, Cardinals. Kyler Murray, he practiced this week. Full participant. He was even taken off injury designation by Thursday. Huh. He's listed as doubtful for Sunday. Gotcha. So likelihood is that he's probably not going to play. Right. Um, let's switch to Suns. One and one to start the year. Bradley mm-hmm. Beal hasn't gotten to play yet. That yep. kind of stinks. Devin Booker missed the game against the Lakers. That was the one that they lost. They're home tonight. Home opener against the Utah Jazz. Probably won't have Bradley Beal. Maybe won't have Devin Booker again. That's kind of a bummer. ASU football. They're back in town hosting Washington State. They lost a tough one last week against number five Washington, 15 to 7. A very competitive matchup that they basically gave away. But they've got Washington State. That one kicks off at 5. That'll be on KTR News 92.3. Suns, by the way, that'll be on ESPN 620. Tip off for that one is at 7. There it is. That's basically it. Oh, and the Coyotes had a 4-1 lead last night, and they lost 5-4 to the Kings. And now we can talk baseball for the next two hours. Yeah, we can talk about baseball. <laughs> now you're all caught up. You're welcome. You Arizona. are welcome. I don't know what happened. I started playing a high. Oh, I see what it is. This was muted for some reason. All right, let's try that again. And the pitch. And a fly ball to right. Backing up is Carroll. And he jumps. And it's gone. And this one is over. And the Texas Rangers have walked off the Diamondbacks on an opposite field home run by Adonis Garcia. And they win game one of the World Series by a score of 6-5. to five. I don't know if I learned anything new about the Texas Rangers last night. You and I, Steve, we're a bunch of seam heads. So we've been following baseball very, very closely on both sides of the league. Man, they are relentless. Man, they are relentless. They just, you would have thought that the Diamondbacks, once they got into the bullpen, this game was OVA over. And instead, the Rangers showed you why they are here in the first place. Yeah, it's interesting because I thought that what would probably kill the Diamondbacks most in this series is the depth that the Rangers have in their lineup. Mm-hmm. Sure, the top half is one of the more impressive top halves of a lineup in baseball. Marcus Simeon's maybe the best second baseman in the game. Corey Seager is probably the best hitting shortstop in the game when he's at his best. Evan Carter, uh, as good as Corbin Carroll's been this year as Rookie of the Year, 
Evan Carter came up in September and has been that level of talent, the Corbin Carroll level of talent. He's right. hitting third in the World Series. He's only been up for a month and a half. Uh, Adolis Garcia might be the hottest hitter on the planet. Mitch Garver, Jonah Heim. I mean, this is a deep, deep lineup. You get to the eighth spot and you get Josh Young, who's been one of the better power hitters. He might win in the rookie, rookie of the class. year in the American League. Yeah, so... Uh, it's funny because I thought it was the depth that would probably kill the Diamondbacks, but really what it was last night was just the star players. Corey Seager hits the two-run homer in the ninth off of Paul Seawald that ties the game. Uh, I know a lot of people are having Byung-Hyung Kim flashbacks today, and I get that. Well, um, justified. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, they've played four road games in World Series history. The Diamondbacks have three of them in 2001, one of them last night. And in three of those four games, they gave up a two-run homer to tie the game in the ninth inning specifically. It's just crazy. How does that happen? That's baseball, I guess. Uh, on top of that, Adolis Garcia, their best player right now, he hits, He gets three hits in that ballgame, including the walk-off home run. He also had a walk. He also had a hit-by-pitch in which he stole the next base on the next pitch. Um, he had an incredible night. And so you got beat by the star players last night. That's exactly what happened in game one. Which, you know, do you feel better about the fact that you lose to the star players, basically? Or does it still kind of eat at you because the Diamondbacks had a two-run lead going into the bottom of the ninth inning and had a chance to steal one? Yeah, it felt like the Diamondbacks had the advantage pretty much the whole game. They were playing from ahead ever since, what was it, the top of the fifth inning when they finally scored their last run. And that's that's the other thing. You didn't score any runs in the second half of this game. That's yeah. not something that can be sustainable if you want to win the World Series. We looked it up last night. After they scored their final run in the fifth inning, they had two hits. And those were their only two base runners, too. After putting up five runs through five innings, the Diamondbacks in the final six... Because we went to extras last night, in case you missed it, put up two hits, and that was it. Yeah, and I partially blame the offense for not providing more insurance, because that's four full innings that they didn't score. And then you look at what happened with the bullpen, and the bullpen has been so good in this postseason. It's it's one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason, the Diamondbacks are even in the World Series. So how much blame do I want to put on Paul Seawald for leaving that high fastball up to Corey Seager that he hits over the wall? Yeah, he gave up the homer and he gave up the other guy to get on base to make it a you know a two run homer. I get that, but you could also lay some blame on Kevin Ginkle, who threw a twenty eight pitch eighth inning. Uh, and by allowing a walk and a hit in that inning, he sets it up so Corey Seager even comes to the plate in the ninth. You could lay some blame there, um, but also on this offense because you went four straight innings without providing any insurance to that 5-3 to three lead that you had. You could have been going into the ninth with Paul Seawald with a three- or four-run lead, and that would have been much uh, more tameable well, for so your closing pitcher. If you even want to get more meticulous, so Cattell Marte doubles in the team's fifth run, there's one out in the inning, and he's at second base. Gabby grounds out, more, moves Marte to third. Christian Walker walks and then steals a base. So now you have two runners in scoring position for Tommy Pham with two outs, and he grounds out. And it was after that point that they only got two hits. So after they scored their final run, they only got three base runners, which is and it's kind of crazy to think about because for eight and a third innings, Five runs was enough to beat the Texas Rangers. But going forward, as crazy as this sounds, five runs is not enough to beat the Texas Rangers. 
The Texas Rangers were one of the better offenses in baseball, had one of the higher run differentials in baseball this year. And again, we don't need to talk about, oh, what their regular season record was and blah, 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 this and blah, 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 that. If anything, this postseason has taught us regular season record doesn't mean kerpoof. Or whatever the word would be that I can properly say on a Kerpoof is a fun word. Kerpoof. I've never heard that word before. <laughs> yeah. The point being is that this is an offense that is going to be, quote-unquote, in the game from start to finish. And we learned that last night. Yeah, I mean, even with a two-run lead, Corey Seager makes it so that you're never really safe. No. Adolis Garcia can hit any given pitch over the wall. I, we talked last night about the at-bat at the end of the game. Miguel Castro comes in just specifically to face Adolis Garcia in that situation. Mm-hmm. And, yes, he gives up a home run. It's an oppo taco, by the way, to right field. He left the fastball um, middle and low, and Garcia feasted. See, I actually didn't hate the pitch. Now, you look at the, the at-bat in its totality. He threw four off-speed pitches low and away to start the at-bat, and he gets to 3-1. 3-1 pitch, he throws a sinker low and in, and you could argue that it caught too much of the plate, but no, I'm looking Garcia at it now. forced it caught... that ball over the right field wall. Yeah. That's just, that's talent. That's skill. I don't blame Castro. It's not like he left that pitch high in the zone or floating right over the middle. Like, a low and in sinker to Adolis Garcia after four straight pitches low and away, I don't see the issue with that. It's also four, I don't blame Castro. It's also four straight off-speed pitches. And then yeah, that's you go, what I'm saying. And then you go back with a sinker. I don't know if that was the right sequencing because clearly you weren't getting him to chase on these low and away pitches. And then all of a sudden you come in with the heat and clearly he was ready for it, even though he was late on the swing. But I think that's more ready of a, for it. Isn't that more of a credit to Garcia than it is a detractor against Castro? Also, make a better pitch. I didn't think it was I, a bad pitch. Look, I would rather lose Garcia in that scenario. Because then what's next? Mitch Garver, who at, You'd that, rather walk at that point in the game, he was 0 for 3 with a walk and an RBI, or Listen, a couple walks and an RBI. I don't disagree with you that you'd rather walk Garcia than have him hit a have, home, home run, obviously, because yeah. that ends the game. But we talked about it last night, too. You, It's tough to justify taking the same approach to Garcia and Seager that you took with Schwarber and Harper. Harper's a decent enough base runner, but Schwarber, you put Schwarber at first base in games six and seven, yeah. it's no big deal. He's not going anywhere. In fact, Gabby Moreno threw him out on a pass ball. Uh, so <laughs> no big deal, right? But if you put Adolis Garcia on base, like when he got hit on the hand or the wrist during game one, what does he do on the very next pitch? He swipes second base. Yeah, Adolis Garcia is a dangerous hitter and base runner, so you can't just intentionally, unintentionally walk him. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm with you. You would have rather walked him than give up a home run, but I didn't think that pitch from Castro was all that bad. I also think we have to consider the scenario that Seawald is a lot slower to the plate than Castro, and Castro throws a lot harder than Seawald. So factors could be different in that as well. Uh, really quickly, Tori Lovello after the game, his message to the team. The same things that always is. You know, we, uh, we, we played a pretty good baseball game. We're in a position to win it. We did a lot right. Um, let's, let's improve on the things that we need to tighten up and come out tomorrow and play our finest game. That, that's all we can do. That's, that's how we've looked at it all season long. So, um, you know, it's frustrating. This is this how the game goes sometimes, and we got to find a way to be resilient, and adaptable, and, and and come out with a clean a clean mind and and do our best. And I have every reason to believe that we will. We've done it a lot this year. And look, we've taken 
call after call in the post game that has mentioned that this team is the answer backs. Uh, one that stands out to me, uh, I believe her name's KC, has mentioned that when they had, when they were down three two against the Phillies, like this is the answer backs. This is the position they put themselves in, and time and time again they bring themselves back into it and get the necessary win and the necessary adjustment and. Everything seems to work out just fine. Yeah, the credit to the Diamondbacks is that they just don't seem to be phased by much. Did you hear the story from Tom Candiotti about uh, being in the elevator Mm -mm. with the players? So Greg Schulte told me this story the other day. uh, That Candiotti was coming down the elevator in the hotel. I guess it would have been in Philadelphia before game six or seven. I can't remember which. And he gets in the elevator to go down to the lobby, and there's three players in there. And I think, if I'm remembering right, it was Corbin Carroll, Gabby Moreno, and Alec Thomas, maybe? Okay. And he gets in the elevator, and all three of them are facing a different wall. Hmm. They're just facing, like, nose to the wall, not looking at each other. And Candy gets in the elevator, and they go down to the lobby, and they get to the lobby floor, and uh, Moreno and Thomas get out. And Corbin stays standing there looking at the wall. And Candy gets out and says, hey, uh, this is the this is the last floor. Like, we're in the lobby. And Corbin looks at him and goes, oh, no, they're going to text me when they're ready. And then I'm coming out. They were, like, playing a game or something. Like, they were, like, playing hide-and-go-seek or something in the hotel before one of the most stressful games of their lives. And that's this Diamondbacks team. Like, they just aren't phased by anything. And maybe it's because they're so young, they just don't realize the, the gravity of the moment. They're like, oh, uh, you know, it's a World Series. So what? It's another baseball game. And that's what I love about this team. They're never out of it. One thing I love about this team, may have finally shown some cracks in the armor last night. We're going to talk about the bullpen next on Arizona Sports Saturday. T-backs, Rangers, Game 2 of the World Series. Coverage begins at 4.15 on Arizona Sports 98.7 and the Arizona Sports app. First pitch to it is a high drive to right and we're tied. No doubt about that one. Seeger ties it with one out in the ninth inning at five. I don't know who knew sooner that that ball was going over the wall. Greg Schulte or Corey Seager? Or Paul Seawald. Yeah, maybe that too. Look, it was one of those moments that as soon as it was hit, it's the heart sinks, shoulders drop. Like every sort of negative reaction that you could have as a Diamondbacks fan in complete polar opposite to every positive reaction that Rangers fans would have. It was the guttural scream from Corey Seager the moment he made contact Yeah, that just told you what had happened before it had officially happened. That ball's nowhere near its peak. It's not even close to landing over the other side of the wall yet, and you knew it was a home run. You just knew. Yep. Also, I think this is worth mentioning about Corey Seager. I think you and I were talking about it last night. Is there anybody with a more rigid batting stance in baseball than Corey Seager? His hands are like, you know when you teach a little kid, like, oh, put your your elbow up and your hand's really high. He looks like the kid that, like, takes that advice way too seriously and is, like, very tight with his stance. Uh, But somehow it works for him. Corey Seager's one of the better postseason hitters. Uh, He's certainly got plenty of experience from his time with the Dodgers. Specifically in this stadium, Steve. Yeah, that too. He had a NLCS and World Series MVP run in this stadium. As a member of the Dodgers with back in no, 2020. With no fans. Well, they had like <laughs> 10,000 or 20,000 or whatever. Yeah, whatever it was. But yeah, no. 
I think that's an interesting part of this is the how the bullpen handled last night's game. I don't pin this all on Paul Seawald. I don't pin it all on Kevin Ginkle, who went you know twenty eight pitches in his inning, and that prolongs uh, the lineup, which allows Corey Seager to come to the plate in that scenario. Um, but this bullpen has been so solid for the Diamondbacks, and it's been bend but not break all postseason, and they finally broke. Just a little bit. And while that may have costed you the game, I don't know that I entirely blame it's it. You can't be perfect through a whole postseason, right? It was never going to end up that way. If it did, it would have been one of the more historic postseason runs ever. I think I saw, I'm trying to remember, because they, MLB's Twitter account put out a stat very early on in the day leading up to it because Ryan Thompson... Paul Seawald and Kevin Ginkle, they've just been absolutely lights out this postseason. Yeah. And so they wanted to emphasize that point with how good the three of those have been. Yeah, coming into last night, the three of them combined had a .98 ERA in 27 and two-thirds innings. Yeah. Well, even after last night's game, Paul Seawald gives up the two-run homer, right? Yeah. You know what his ERA is in the postseason right now? Um, It is. I'm looking at it right now. Oh, two. Those are his first those two. Those are the only runs he's given up. In the whole postseason. Wow. So can we really sit here and be like, wow, Paul Seawald, not good, right? Well, so, I mean, it was a bad outing. Yes. But there were a lot of factors involved there. There's something that we kind of touched on a bit last night, but we haven't really gone in depth about it. Paul Seawald was really successful in the eight innings that he's thrown so far because he was facing teams that he maybe didn't face for an entire year and a half. They don't the have familiarity division. with him. The Texas Rangers and the Seattle Mariners, if you did not know, Share a division in the American League. Paul Seawald used to be the closer for the Seattle Mariners. Paul Seawald and the Texas Rangers have seen each other quite a bit. I'm not saying that's the overall reason as to why Corey Seager was smart enough to jump on the first pitch fastball and send it like into the stratosphere. Into the moon, yeah. But this does come into consideration, especially if he gets roughed up again. Because he will pitch again. Don't get it wrong. Oh, yeah. He will pitch in this series again. I like where his head's at, too, because he was talking with the media after the game last night and basically said, you know, I'm hoping that I get the same scenario tomorrow. Yep. Because I'm of the mindset where I'm going to go out there and do my job, and I'm not going to let that happen again. And we had a caller last night who pointed out very astutely that that fastball was almost the identical fastball that Corey Seager had hit out in the NLCS. And while that's true... I don't think that you could take that pitch away just because Seager's had success with it before. Paul Seawald lives high in the zone with his fastball. That, yes. That's just that's like one of two things that he does. He throws high fastballs in the zone, and then he hits you with sweepers low and away to a righty. Like, that's what he does. So uh, taking away that pitch, you're essentially saying like, oh, take away half of what you do effectively. Yeah. And so he's going to continue to live high in the zone. Pitching is this weird thing, man. And I did it at like the low high school level. So I don't want to pretend like I'm a professional here. Um, But it's so mental that if Paul Seawald goes to the mound again tonight in game two, he has to be able to throw that same pitch that he gave up a home run on. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, because it's part of his sequence. Yeah. He can't just ignore it. High fastball and you play off of it with a sweeper that darts away. Yeah, that's his sequencing. I just wanted to look it up in fairness to Paul. Um, a 218 ERA, 22 strikeouts and six saves and 21 appearances against the Rangers in his entire career. This year alone, he's had three appearances, one with Seattle, two of them with Arizona, three innings, two hits allowed and zero runs. 
So, yeah, he's been really good against the Rangers. But the Rangers were the successor last night when it came to against Seawald. Leody Tavares, I don't think he's going to get enough credit from the Texas market. He might, but he had two really important walks last night that helped set the table for not only the ninth inning, but what eventually became the walk-off 11th inning for Texas. Got to get the ninth guy out in the lineup. Like yep. That needs to be a consistent thing. And I think that the Diamondbacks got a little bit lucky in the NLCS that they had a guy like Rojas in that ninth spot for the Phillies who just can't hit. He, was, he just can't do he it. He was purely there to play defense. Right. Leody Tavares is not the same as Johan Rojas. Right. He, this he was, is a deeper lineup one through nine than even the Phillies, who had an, Nick Castellanos was hitting seventh in their lineup, and he was maybe the hottest hitter in the playoffs at one point. At one point, and then he was literally the coldest player in the playoffs in the entire NLCS. And I think the Rangers lineup is even more consistent. One to nine. I mean, look, I'm looking at it right now. I'm reading it. I don't know where the weak point is in this lineup. No. Frankly, it's Marcus Simeon, but that's only because he's hitting 190 in the playoffs. They got a couple of switch hitters. They got two lefties in the top, in the first three. Yeah, that's the other thing. They're they're able to sequence the lineup in a great way. Righty, lefty, lefty, righty, righty, switch, lefty, righty, switch. Yeah. There's no there's no There's no easy attack point. There's no point in their lineup where they have three guys in a row with the same handedness. Now, it'll probably be different. Well, may, actually, no, it would be the same tonight because Kelly is throwing and he's a righty. In the lefty matchups, they'd had benched Carter and put in Robbie Grossman, who's a switch hitter. But the likelihood is, is that Evan Carter is going to be hitting in the three hole in all of these games. And he had another great night last night. Two for six with a run and an RBI driven in. He's been a great addition for them. I saw somewhere Evan Carter splits. Now, he didn't play a lot of games at the By end the way, of the season. He's, he's 21 years old, so he's two years younger than Corbin Carroll, Alec Thomas, and Gabby Moreno. Carter only got 10 at-bats against lefties in the regular season, so I don't want to pretend like this is a big sample size. Mm-hmm. But he didn't get a single hit. He hit zero against uh-huh. lefties in the regular season. Again, 10 at-bats, not a lot. Right. Uh but if you look at his postseason, and I will look at that, I will look that up uh, during the break because I don't know it off the top of my head. But Evan Carter appears to be that kind of lefty hitter that you want a lefty on the mound for that guy. It's not like Kyle Schwarber where it's like, okay, he's a little bit uh, not as good against lefties. Evan Carter like appears that he cannot touch a lefty, right? So you gotta have one on the mound for that. That's just the way that I view Evan Carter right now. Actually, somebody who would have a little bit more insight into Evan Carter and the rest of this Texas lineup is going to join us next on the show. A friend of mine from high school, actually, is a beat writer for the Texas Rangers. He was there last night for Game 1, there tonight for Game 2. We're going to get the Texas perspective coming up next. I wonder what they think of this Diamondbacks team. We'll find out next on Arizona Sports Saturday. of the World Series. Coverage begins at 4.15 on Arizona Sports 98.7 and the Arizona Sports app. Well, the Texas Rangers get game one, 6-5 on the walk-off home run from Adolis Garcia. Corey Seager also notably with the two-run homer in the bottom of the ninth that tied the game against the Diamondbacks' closer, Paul Seawald. We wanted to get some uh, perspective from the Texas side of things. So my good friend uh, from high school, Alex Plank, is a beat writer. Uh, 
He's a beat writer covering the Rangers over at Dallas Sports Fanatic. So uh, I asked him to come on the show and tell us a little bit about the Texas side of things. Hey, Plank, what's going on, buddy? What's going on, Zinsmeister? How you guys doing? I'm good. Hey, this is my uh, radio partner, Mitch Vereldis, as well. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes and chatting with us. I'm sure you're either at the ballpark or on your way to the ballpark for Game 2 today. Um, set us up a little bit for, for Game 2. We know what happened in Game 1. We're going to get Jordan Montgomery tonight. What do we know about Jordan Montgomery? Jordan Montgomery has been a horse this postseason. Uh, came in Game 7, two and a third scoreless against the Astros really, I mean, has just been dominant this postseason outside of maybe a four-run performance in four innings in game two against the Orioles. Uh, six and a third shutout in uh, game one against the Astros. Uh, five and a third, two runs against Houston in, in game five. But he's, you could say Nathan Avaldi is the Rangers' best postseason pitcher. You could say Jordan Montgomery. I wouldn't say he'd be wrong either way, but the Rangers bringing out the second part of their two-headed postseason monster on the mound. And then there's the third monster, where at least in intimidating fashion and by name alone, Max Scherzer, who is likely to set up and pitch in Game 3. But he hasn't looked like the same Max Scherzer. What do you give as the reasoning as to why he hasn't looked like Mad Max right now? Well, he's coming off. He hadn't pitched since mid-September uh, when he left his start against the Blue Jays. And so he'd gone about a month without pitching. And then you know, facing live hitters is a totally different animal than doing live BP. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I, that's why a tribute to his outing against the Astros wasn't that great. And he even said he felt great. His stuff felt great. Uh, it just didn't. He made too many mistakes. And then in Game Seven against the Astros, you don't really have much wiggle room to work with. And so when as soon as you get into trouble, you're out of there. And Bruce Bochy's not even going to take any chances. Sort of like what Dusty Baker did with Christian Javier. Talking to my good friend Alex Plink, covers the Texas Rangers for Dallas Sports Fanatic. You know, I remember back, God, it must have been six, seven months ago, you and I having dinner at spring training, and I don't think either one of us thought either of our teams would end up where they are currently. (laughs) Can you tell us, I know what we all think in the Valley of the Arizona Diamondbacks as a team, but what is the Rangers' perspective? What do Dallas fans, what do they think of the Arizona Diamondbacks coming into this series? Well, I'll say this, is that a lot of people prefer the Diamondbacks over the Phillies because it's such a great story either way. Uh, But with the Diamondbacks, you know, you saw them four times this year. But the one thing that stood out to me is that you don't see this style of play, especially nowadays, where teams are playing small ball. Teams are – you're seeing more stolen bases because of the way the rules are. But, I mean, bunting, sacrifice bunting, you don't see that. Team speed, you don't really see that. It's all about the power in the lineups. And so that's why I feel like the Diamondbacks are a very tough matchup. Similar, I would even say a tougher matchup than the Rays and the Orioles. And the thing with the Rays and the Orioles is they didn't have really any base runners or they were down in the series to where they couldn't utilize their game plan. You saw it yesterday. This is what I like about the way this series was set up yesterday is that both offenses got to utilize their game plans 100%. You got to see why both offenses are successful by their own means. But it's also kind of interesting because while it's clear that the Rangers are driven by the power that they provide in that lineup, we also saw a little bit of a taste of their speed and their base running ability. Like Evan Carter, we know how fast he is. And Adolis Garcia even swiped a bag on the first pitch after getting hit by a pitch. How much of a factor does their speed play into their uh, approach? Well, they, they're a team that is really aggressive when going from first to third, but 
they don't really run that much. They're a lot more uh, passive when it comes to stealing bases compared to previous years. Mm. And I, I think one of those things is that you just, it, it's passing the baton. It's relying on the guy behind you to deliver in the clutch moment. Because, I mean, with two outs, if you go and you get caught, now all of a sudden ending over and the bases are cleared instead of an opportunity for a gapping double to score a run or a two-run homer. That's why Leo Tavares, well, first pitch for Corey Seager, but I wouldn't even think you'd see Leo Tavares try to run in the ninth inning because you want to give Corey Seager an opportunity. Talking to Alex Plank, he covers the Texas Rangers for Dallas Sports Fanatic. Uh, let's let's get real here for a second, Plank. It's just you and us talking. <laughs> what is the weakness for this guy, Adolis Garcia? Because he's just tearing the cover off the ball, and we we got to do something to stop him. How how do you do that? What is his weakness? The easy answer, walk him. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you don't want him to hurt you, you walk him. Or I guess you, well, no, I wouldn't say don't hit him because then it'll yeah. just fire him up more. Yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, the thing about Adolis Garcia when he first came up was his weakness was his chase rate. He would be chasing all over the place. And each and every year, he's becoming more and more tribute to the strike zone and not chasing and taking walks now. Yesterday, he drew his first postseason walk of this postseason, but the walk total has increased each and every year because while Adolis has the flair of the dramatic, you realize in this lineup that, hey, if I don't see a good pitch I, I want to hit, I'm going to take it, I'm going to take my walk, and I'll let the guy behind me take care of it. Speaking of this lineup, a guy that hits a couple of places before him who's having a, quietly a Barry Bonzian-like postseason in Corey Seager, do you think there's any sort of, I mean, obviously he had the World Series and the playoff run in Texas back in 2020 when that was the only place baseball could be played. And do you think that his familiarity with this park has very much served as an advantage to him in this postseason? Oh, he loves this place. He loves this place. It's pretty a tribute when you join this club and you pick the exact same locker that you you had in 2020. Wow. I mean, they give him, they give him the exact same locker and locker locked in however you want to play on words on there. But yeah, no, he, he just, it, it's amazing when it comes to playing at Globe Life Field and Corey Seager, it's just, you know that you're in for a treat. I don't even really have a good question here. I'm just going to kind of throw out a name and you tell me how you feel about the situation. Bruce Bochy came out of retirement to do this job again as the manager. I don't know that his family wanted him to do it. I don't know that he needed to do it. I think he probably is one of the better managers of this era to begin with without going to the World Series this year. But here we are. He shows back up at the ballpark and takes a team immediately to the World Series. What can you say about Bruce Bochy and the job he's done this year? Bruce Bochy is one of the most calm guys, regardless if the team has won eight straight, lost eight straight, which coincidentally happened in the same month. <laughs> Talking to Bruce Bochy, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know where the team is at when you're talking to him before the game. He's just the most calm-mannered, and it reflects on the team. I mean, when you – the interesting thing is, is that when the team flew from Seattle to Tampa after losing three or four to the Mariners and essentially losing the division – one of the things is, okay, who stepped up? Who made this big hero speech? Nobody did. Everybody knew that, hey, we missed out on an opportunity. Now we have to go to Tampa, and we have to play a wild card series, and it's game on. I don't know. And it all stems oh, from the top. Oh, sorry, Alex, about that. I don't know if you, if you see the similarity the same way that I do, because you follow this team a lot closer. 
But the last time that the Rangers were in the World Series, they were kind of driven by these expensive contracts and a lot of power. And I almost see the same kind of scenario with this 2023 team. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. I think you do. And I think the beauty of this team is that it's not only the big contracts of Simeon, Seeger in the lineup you're talking, but also you've got Adolis who I'm sure everybody is aware of now via Twitter slash X that <laughs> they basically got him from cash for the Cardinals and got him back from the Rangers after they DFA'd him. Nobody wanted to claim him. Uh, but then you've got Evan Carter, who they drafted in 2020, just turned 21. And so you've got a mixture of young talent and veteran talent. Uh, and even speaking of like Jonah Heim, who they got from Oakland a couple of years back from El- for Elvis Andrews. Everybody gets a good piece of their team from Oakland, it feels like. Yeah. Uh, Plink, I just went back deep into my text messages with you back to the year 2021 uh, when Adolis Garcia started to make an impact. And I texted you and I said, uh, what's the deal with this Adolis Garcia guy? Should I pick him up? And you said, yes, yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, you did also mention he might lose playing time to Chris Davis. Thank God that didn't happen. Uh, but I just wanted to give you credit that even a couple of years ago, you knew Adolis Garcia was going to be something special. So uh, I love you for that. I also don't love you for that because of what happened to the Diamondbacks last night. But credit to you, brother. You, you certainly called the, your shot on that one. I will give myself half a credit because I think – that Chris Davis thing, um, that was, that was bad. <laughs> I think we're all pretty gra- pretty glad that didn't turn out the way you thought. Hey, Plank, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us today. Uh, uh, have fun at the ballpark for game two. Not too much fun because we're, we're pulling for a D-backs win here tonight. But uh, thank you for your time, brother, and I'll talk to you soon, all right? Appreciate it, guys. And, yeah, it should be a fun week, fun series. And uh, you guys have fun uh, at Chase Field during the week. Thanks, oh, Alex. Yeah. It'll be good, man. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate your time. That's Alex Plank, Dallas sports fanatic, uh, Rangers beat writer. Uh, he and I grew up together watching Rangers games together and because I grew up in Dallas. And so the fact that we both get to cover these two respective teams at the time that we do, and they're both in the World Series, uh, that means a lot to me. It's a good friend. There's a lot of talk about one individual in that interview, Steve. Garcia? Adolis Garcia. Yeah, he's pretty there's good, a, wouldn't you say? There's another individual that was brought up in that interview, Corey Seager. Any reason that they should approach those two the way they did against two certain Philadelphia hitters? We'll try to figure out if that's reasonable next on Arizona Sports Saturday. T-backs, Rangers, Game 2 of the World Series. Coverage begins at 4.15 on Arizona Sports 98.7 and the Arizona Sports app. Listening right now to Arizona Sports Saturday, live here in the Auction Community Studios. Mitch Veraldis, Steve Zinsmeister, and right now, you're about to hear from Tori Lovello after last night's game. Any conversation to pitch around Seeger in that bottom of the ninth? Yeah, right. That's what I was just talking talking to the front office about in my office. Um, in a fantasy land, knowing the outcome, and you're trying to prevent a two-run home, two home run to stay in the game. Um, yeah, yeah you, you, you feel like... You, you put him on, and you got first and second with some very capable hitters behind him, which you got to be careful of. And, you know, um, yeah, I think if I'm sitting there as a Monday morning quarterback, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it now. But I was, I was thinking with a very clear head, make pitches. We had our closer in the game, and we're, we're going to get a couple outs here and, and march off this, this field 5-3. to three. That was my mindset. And look, hindsight's twenty twenty. so of course if you want to say, yeah, we'll pitch around Seager the next time that comes up, of course you're going to say that. He had a 
game-tying two-run homer. But it's interesting to hear that he kind of had a clear mindset in terms of, I trust my closer. We're going to go after him. I don't care that there's a runner on. We're going to go after him. Now, I'm curious if our Diamondbacks lead writer, Alex Weiner with Arizona Sports, agrees with that sentiment. He joins us now live from Arlington here on the Arizona Sports Line. Alex, first of all, hello. Thanks so much for taking some time for us. Hey, guys. So I don't know if you were able to catch any of – well, I mean, you were in the presser last night. When when Greg Moore asked the question about was there an idea to pitch around Seager and just the way that Lavello answered that question, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. We probably they probably should have pitched around him in the end. Do you think that changes their approach to specifically Corey Seager tonight? Yeah, uh, actually, I was in the clubhouse, uh, but I went back and watched it, so we're all good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean. I think you guys uh, asked me this last night about pitching around guys and, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, they're trying to make mistakes there. I mean, that was a pitch that, you know, top of the zone fastball, but caught the middle. Um, you know, that's an area where Seawald lives, but just kind of over the center of the plate. And of course, Seager was looking first pitch fastball and got a hold of one. So, yeah, I mean, they pitched around him a little bit at the beginning of the game too. Um, and he walked a couple times and he scored a couple of runs. So, you know, there's a fine line between pitching around guys and letting them go. And sometimes it works, like with the Kyle Schwarber situation in Philadelphia, and sometimes it doesn't. Could you speak to the basically the way that Paul Seawald pitches, too, I think plays into this. Like, he throws a lot of high fastballs. That's one of his pitches that sets up his, his sweeper so well. So I, I can't imagine a scenario where Paul Seawald, of all pitchers, just avoids throwing high fastballs in the zone, right? Yeah, he's got two pitches. And so he's, he's got his fastball and he's got his sweeper. And, um, you know, he's, he's got when he's, you know, darting both of them, that's when he's at his best. But... Uh, yeah, part of that fastball. I mean, it's not a 99-mile-an-hour fastball that he could put anywhere and blow past people. It's, you know, 92, 93. So he's got to live up in the zone and change eye levels and keep hitters guessing, and that's where he makes his money. So, yeah, I, I don't imagine he will look like a different pitcher because he gave up a, you know, had a blown save. He's had blown saves. He's going to have more blown saves. But um, he's been mostly excellent uh, this postseason, especially with six saves. And so I don't know if anything will change too drastically. I just think that the pitch got left over the plate a little too much. Let's transition into how pitching is going to look today. Of course, you've got Merrill Kelly on the Diamondbacks side of things. We asked you about him last night. I'm more so curious about Jordan Montgomery. And we've seen that the Diamondbacks have approached left-handed hitters basically the same when it comes to the order. Do you personally expect the same approach in terms of Alec Thomas likely takes a seat. Longoria moves to DH, and Rivera slots in at third base to fill the spot in the order. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's what they did in the Philly series when they went up against a left-handed starting pitcher. Um, I, don't, I don't think they've released a lineup yet today. Yeah, not not yet. Um, but that'll probably come in the next you know few minutes. So we'll have an answer pretty soon. Yeah, I mean that's that's the way they've rolled with it, and. You know, it hasn't been a great postseason for Rivera, but he got a hit in that last game against the Phillies. They would use Thomas later in the game, potentially uh, either defensively as a pinch hit spot, pinch run spot. So, um, yeah, that's that's the way that they've gone recently, and I don't know if that'll change here. Christian Walker, 0 for 4 last night, 163 is his batting average in the postseason. Um, he's got the most walks on the team in the postseason, however, so he's being patient, but is he being too passive, and would you like to see him be more aggressive at the plate? 
Um, I don't know if it's being too passive. Yeah, the walks have been a huge help because, like you mentioned, it's it's it's, it's had a couple of tough at bats. I mean, even yesterday, you know, it looked like he was starting to turn a corner in that Philly series. He really um, hit a ball hard to deep right field that ended up being a fly out. Um, but that kind of looked like okay, he's at least getting he's hitting the ball a little bit harder. Um, and then yesterday was just a really tough day with the strikeouts and you know that last bat especially where. Um, I believe it was a breaking ball in the dirt that he whiffs over and then a high fastball that he's just laid on and then whiffs again. And just, um, yeah, it, it's just one of those things where he's going through it right now and trying to fight out of it. And I think being patient and working the walks has kept him competitive. So um, I don't know if that will necessarily change. I think he's just got to, you know, Troy Lavelle said this during the NLCS, Drew Mather kind of said this to me before the World Series started about just kind of blocking into your zone um, and sticking with that as opposed to trying to chase every strike. Alex Weiner, our lead Diamondbacks writer with us at Arizona Sports, joining us here on the Arizona Sports line here on Arizona Sports Saturday. A lot of Arizona Sports in that uh, tagging there. Alex, I'm curious. Arizona Sports happening. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you mentioned that you were in the clubhouse last night. You went around to talk a bunch of the players. I'm curious, did you get any sort of uh, inkling that maybe they feel a little bit of pressure to try and leave Texas with a 1-1 series tie? Or do you think that they were more focused on how the game ended last night? Yeah, I think they were on to the next day. Um, you know, a, a few of them brought up what they were able to accomplish in Philadelphia, falling behind. You don't want to fall in love with being able, like only playing with your back against the wall. I mean, very, <laughs> a very few handful of teams have been able to come back from down 0-2 in seven-game series historically, and the D-backs are able to do that against a tough Phillies team. But this is a very good Rangers team with probably a deeper lineup than Philadelphia without the top end, as many top end star guys, but um, yeah, you know, good starting rotation. I don't know. It's, it's, I guess the mood afterwards was like kind of on to the next day. They've been here before they've overcome the odds before. And so that's sort of the mindset here. Greg Schulte told a, a funny story about Tom Candiotti getting in the elevator with some of the players before game seven, and they were kind of like playing a weird game where they were like facing the walls and they weren't talking to each other, but they were having fun and nothing seems to phase these guys. They're so young in the clubhouse. Do you have any anecdotes, any stories about being around the clubhouse and just how these guys don't seem to really be encapsulated by the moment? Like they're not, they're not surrendering to the bright lights at all. Yeah, it's uh, kind of an anecdote. I mean, you know, before Game 7 of the National League Championship Series against the Phillies, I mean, Troy Lovello in the interview room talked about how, you know, you always want to kind of get the pulse of your team before a big game like that. But when he walked by, there were guys playing cards, they were having conversations, they were somewhere eating Philly cheesesteaks in the eating room. I mean, it just seemed like a totally normal day. And while the World Series is a little different because there's more media responsibilities and you have to sign all these baseball, you have to do this with all this merchandise. And um, But, you know, it, it felt like at least before the game, and this is what, you know, Tori talked about yesterday and Merrill talked about yesterday, and just the feeling was that, you know, they were continuing to have business as usual. So, yeah, it's a tough team as far as its maturity, um, especially for how young it is. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, they have this many 23-year-olds who go out and put together, you know, good, mature at-bats in these big moments. And so, yeah, it's, it's been pretty cool to watch. Alex, as always, thank you so much for the time. And then Steve and I will chat with you later again tonight following game two, all right? All right. We'll see what happens. All right, take it easy. Alex Weiner, who's our lead Diamondbacks writer, covers them for us at Arizona Sports.
and ArizonaSports.com. He oh. must be so tired of us by now. He's <laughs> like, probably like, oh, I got to talk to them Every again. night, he's like, oh, I got to talk to those guys. i tell you what I'm not tired again. of. I'm telling you what I'm not tired of, Steve. What's that? The expression, snakes alive. Oh, yeah. And it's really I, caught on. I don't it? know if you guys have heard. We found him. We got him. We got him. He's joining us in studio next on Arizona Sports Saturday.